Hello, everyone. You are listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. Welcome back. If you've made it to um, this unofficial part three of the 2022 Florida Historical Society annual uh, meeting and symposium. So please, before I say anything, go check out part one, which is day one, which is episode 21. Um, I didn't do that on purpose. It just kind of worked out like that with the numbers. Um, But yeah, episode 21, which covers um, interviews that I did during the first day of the symposium event. And then please go check out day two, episode 22, um, which features uh, interviews that I did during day two of the event. And then this episode 23 that you're listening to right now features Allison Mitchell, who I'll get into who she is in the actual podcast, but I'll say a quick introduction here. So Allison Mitchell is a PhD candidate at the University of Virginia and a dissertation fellow at Emory University's James Weldon Johnson Institute. Her work focuses on the history of black electoral politics and grassroots organizing in the South. And she was this year's 10th annual Gerald A. Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture. And we get into into the podcast, but she's the first grad student. And I think I can say that with full conviction because um, I don't think there was any other grad student that presented in this um, lecture series. So it's a big deal. And, you know, she she laughed about we laughed about it when we got into it in the podcast. Um, but it's a big deal. And this is a precedent that Holly set back when she was the podcast producer of the show. And I just wanted to continue that precedent because this um, Schaffner lecture series is highly important. Um, and it's very traditional here. And I, I want to keep up with the tradition, um, not just for tradition's sake, but because these lecture series often evaluate an important aspect about Florida's history um, and Florida's culture that not a lot of people know about or they don't um, care to know about. But it's important to know. Um, so that this is the the intro to the pod. I, I'm not going to continue talking because this podcast, it's it's special. So kick back, relax and cue that music. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Night History Cast and I have the pleasure and the honor to be sitting with Allison Mitchell who was this year's Gerald H. Schaffner Lecture of Florida History and Culture. Allison Mitchell is a PhD candidate at the University of Virginia and a dissertation fellow at Emory University's James Weldon Johnson Institute. Her work focuses on the history of black electoral politics and grassroots organizing in the South. This year's Schaffner Lecture, like I mentioned, will focus on a key area of this work. So hello, Allison, how are you doing? Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Sebastian. Yeah, I'm excited to have a conversation with you. So um, I just read off a speaker bio here from the program, but I want you to personally uh, elaborate more on your bio and, you know, your profession. Right. So my work in general, um, particularly my dissertation, I look at black electoral politics and voter suppression, and I center Florida as kind of a case study for larger issues concerning the U.S. and electoral politics and racism. 
and my work goes from roughly about 1940 to more so present day. So it's, it's a long disc. Um, and so I'm kind of just tracking uh, how Florida, particularly black Floridians, are navigating the changes in politics and the political system through this time to kind of help us, you know, think about how we got where we are now with so much going on in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like I mentioned to you off mic, and I'm going to say it here for our listeners. So first half of the interview will be mainly about um, the presentation you gave at this year's Gerald H. Schaffner lecture. And then the second half is going to be more so about the specifically the panel you were a part of um, in today's day two uh, program of the FHS symposium event, which was about um, the future of history and graduate education. And that's going to kind of lead into just personally more about you know your experiences in graduate school and you know any advice you have for fellow historians uh undergrad or grad school so we'll get into all those topics but like i said first thing let's talk about um your uh presentation at the Joe a schaffner lecture and correct me if i'm wrong but the title uh of the presentation was protest to politics or protest and politics protest to politics politics to politics and um so you the that title slide was examining the relationship between demonstrations and voter registration drives and how it affects the impact of core's voter registration campaign so i guess i'll start off with who is core what is core and from there you could elaborate more Awesome. So the Congress of Racial Equality uh, is honestly one of the older um, civil rights groups that we see. And CORE essentially was where you kind of got the first development of like the nonviolent direct action. Uh, it actually came out of another group earlier called FOUR. And this is, I want to say, roughly the 1940s. Um, and so CORE is co-founded. And one of the people I talked about was like Bayer Rustin, uh, who's a very known um, civil rights historian. You know, he's one of the people who's known to be too taught MLK about um, nonviolent direct action, you know, not, you know, carrying weapons, et cetera. And so CORE at this point in the 1960s is um, not as p- prevalent as it was before, but it was pivotal in the Freedom Rides that many people know about. Um, the, that real early, um, very much uh, dismantling segregation. And so it's one of those organizations that, other than those like large scale, like I said, the Freedom Ride movement, or knowing like its leaders and James Farmer is one of the presidents, I mean, it doesn't always get as much discussion as like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, right? SNCC or, um, or the NAACP, right? They don't get it. They don't get as much attention, but they were around like um, for a very long time. Um, and then you transition to uh, the start of the VEP in Florida. Um, can you explain to our listeners what the VEP is? Right. So the Voter Education Project actually came out of a, a meeting with um, Robert Kennedy, I believe. Um, and this is a, a meeting basically with various leaders, so CORE, SNCC, and OSCP, um, and others, where essentially um, it kind of came to the conversation of like, hey, these demonstrations are making national, international news. Um, how about we do a large-scale voter education drives and project, you know, get people registered to vote. And so the VPE kind of came, for the for the federal government anyway, was a way to kind of shift those who were doing that, like, um, 
more grander direct action and put them somewhere that wasn't going to necessarily be as um, condemning to the U.S. because essentially they were always met with extreme racism. And that was like it was just the U.S. didn't need that. You know, this is like um, the Cold War era, like the U.S. is trying to protect its image. So the voter education project it was housed at um, in Atlanta. And it was housed under the Southern Regional Council, which actually began in the 1940s. And so they have been doing work and trying to understand, doing a lot of research on like um, black voting in the in the South. And so they basically um, housed the voter education project. Where that's where the the center essentially, kind of the main um, core of it is. And so they work alongside with philanthropists uh, who fund a lot of this to get these groups into different southern states um, and to find out one statistically like how many black people are voting etc and to get them registered but under the larger guise the idea was that oh they're just gonna do um, work on better understanding it but the reality was they were gonna work and try to get as many black people registered as possible and this is happening it starts in 1962 1962 and where does North Florida and South Florida, that that um, relationship come into the story. Right. So CORE had already started trying to work more in the South. And so they actually started a chapter in Miami, um, which is funny because like Nor- uh, CORE, if you look at anything written on them, they were considered, like I said, a northern organization. But they go to one of the far the farthest south and they, they go to Miami in the 1960s. Um, and they actually teach um, a lot of students who later go to, um, particularly FAMU, um, they come down there and they have a, a conference, essentially. They teach uh, nonviolent direct action. Um, and from there, a chapter is uh, founded in Tallahassee, another one, I think, in St. Pete. Um, and they try to spread out as much as possible. So when the Voter Education Project came up and CORE was given the opportunity to, you know, give some funding and have people do it, uh, the first place they, they chose was one of their um, already established chapters, which was the one in Miami. I find it, I found it very interesting um, as someone, you know, present in your lecture that you included a video interview of Patricia Stevens do. Um, why, what was behind that decision? I wanted, I wanted people to see um, her because Patricia Stevens do um, and her husband, John do, like Florida had its own major civil rights leaders. Um, and to hear her voice, that one clip is one of several clips um, of all of her work throughout her life in Florida. And I think that one clip itself kind of summarized um, the issues and what we saw happening in North Florida. So they moved to North Florida and started working there roughly around 1963 is when they kind of decided to do it. They got the ball rolling at the beginning, January of 1964. And her discussion of... Gadsden um, in Leon County where you know Tallahassee was and she was a part of that core chapter as well in starting it that that narrative situates itself in the ones that most people already know and that's like what's happening with SNCC in Mississippi the idea that people were apprehensive about violence the fact that there were people still working on tobacco plantations as she called it uh, the fact that, you know, people remember the history of people being lynched there. I think a lot of times um, we don't think about Florida as being a part of that community in the South and all those issues, but also having a, you know, a robust group of black uh, civil rights leaders wanting to work there. And so I think putting one of the most prominent people who did some of the best work, but also her just talking about what it meant to go there um, would help my audience understand that this was um, 
something that was passionate. Like her talking, I don't know if you remember her saying what her former teacher would say, like, mm -hmm. this is my land, like, yep. this is my, you know, this is my country, this is my space. Like, yep. that's how these people felt. And like, that's what made them organizing there so important. And um, so, yeah, I wanted people to feel that because I feel like what she conveyed in her experience, I I couldn't speak for her in that regard. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that was the right decision that you made in putting that clip uh, of her in your incorporated within your your presentation because uh, I felt that what you know so you succeeded in that goal because as an audience member I felt that passion that she uh, was conveying about her experiences with this broader story um, and then just like as and from a technical standpoint you know putting a, a, a video within a presentation that's kind of bold, like bold um, and it has to have some type of reason so I immediately was like this is a good clip I wonder why she used it. So I'm glad I was able to ask you that. Um, can you walk us through the Big Ben voter campaign and community re community responses to initial intimidation? So the campaign, at first it started off, um, and I, some of this stuff I didn't even get to put in the presentation because I only had a certain amount of time, but like it was just a struggle in the beginning for them to find somewhere to even have a building to, to house themselves, right? Because um, a lot of what came in the organizing was like something as simple as having an office and a phone just to be in contact with the VP and other people. So it started off with them developing an office in Tallahassee. Um, and so they decided, you know, they're going to go in Gatson too. And so when they initially get there, um, people don't want to work with them. Uh, Patricia even you know, said she wanted to, to stay there. Uh, her and Judy Benninger had a hard time getting housing at first. Um, and so it was the understanding that though uh, Patricia Stevens' due family was from there and she grew up there for a, part, a period of her life, um, that people had experienced um, the racism and were very jaded from the idea of being involved in politics and voting um, and being involved in any form of that civil rights stuff, as some people would call it. Uh, and these were students who were coming in who were direct action you know workers they have put their bodies on the line and so for the for you know a community like that's a, a lot of trouble comes with that um so the initial stuff was apprehension but when people started to get involved as she said you know the reverend in connecting her they had police officers follow them through the entire year and on they followed them every day um they were often arrested for just being around each other um a lot of times when you, they saw interracial groups the argument was uh, they would say trespassing if it was a white person on a black property because usually what it was like they were bringing white uh, students with them. They would, you know, disturbing the peace, all these things to try to intimidate them and stop them um, shooting, you know, shooting bullets in people's homes. Even after CORE um, went from the voter um, education project work and they, they later called it um, North Florida, um, the North Florida, like it was like a North, it was North Florida uh, voter campaign, which is mainly their funding. Um, and Patricia Stevens even leaves. Uh, and Spicer Gordon's there. Like, they tried to set um, their office on fire. Uh, so they experienced wow. some of that traditional, um, very much Southern violence yeah. uh, towards them uh, as they saw uh, black voting um, and black political engagement. And quite frankly, I think in a broader sense, black Americans pushing against the status quo and the establishment um, as a threat. Right, for sure. And then this is where also we get to see the dynamic between adult and youth responses. Yeah. And I found that particularly intriguing um, when you were presenting um, the lecture uh, and to the point where, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
because you know I was trying to get as much many notes down but you know um, for the youth to be involved with this process they were pressuring and one of their forms of pressuring was singing the freedom songs was that yeah. it yeah 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 uh, I found so yeah that. that's the story um, that cool. <laughs> so that story is actually so interesting because yeah. You see how um, there's always like some type of force trying to stop them. So they're they can't mind you. Some of these students are they're high school students. Like they're not legally allowed to vote, but they want to get involved with CORE because they know CORE is, is a civil rights group. It's, got, it's about action, um, and so CORE teaches them freedom songs and about voting rights and et cetera. And so their principal <laughs> is you know by his superiors who these are white um, school officials basically telling him tell your students you know not to be around core and mm-hmm. so when he tries to talk to them they sing over him there's like 200 and some students and i was like trying to picture this like this hallway of all these students yeah. just singing every time he tries to talk like, I was like yeah that's 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 yeah. great uh, i think who said it best uh vp franklin actually recently had a book i used it in the talk too called young crusaders and he actually came to uf virtually and i was listening to him talk about it and he was like you know youth like elementary up have always been a part of the civil rights movement we just didn't look for them like they've always been there and sometimes as historians like it's us looking for them so i've tried to do that because i've always seen like a disgruntled high school student or middle school student pop up every now and then in the story um in the civil rights era anyway yeah and to go along with that theme of of getting overlooked another um i in my personal opinion uh, thought was really important ab- uh, about your lecture was the fact that there was struggle with collaborating between the two groups uh, and getting this process going. And um, you even mentioned er- uh, later on in, in the lecture, I think part of the, the Q&A um, where, you know, and I'm, and I'm butchering it, I'm not quoting you exactly, but you were saying something along the lines of it wasn't perfect. It wasn't peachy. The, the collaboration between the two groups. So can you expand on that process? No, definitely. I think cause I think a lot of it is just like when we think of the, because a lot came out of the civil rights movement. That is not, a that's, you know, without question. And I think a lot of times uh, we want to push on what they've, and I've learned, you know, the, the progress narrative because the idea that everyone worked a certain way, got together, and then from there we got immediate progress with the, the you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 1965 Voting Rights Act, and the Housing Act, right? Like that's kind of the narrative. Mm-hmm. But when you look at local people and the you know historians that have come before me in all of the civil rights studies, and they've started to look at that like decades ago. I'm talking like so uh, civility and civil mm-hmm. rights. One of the you know Shea, uh, Shea's oh. book, like you realize that there's a lot of cont- when you look at the local level, like people didn't agree at all, and right. I think that kind of it's not the most beautiful history, but it's a reality. And exactly. I think it's one that I want to highlight more. Um, and I think others as well is disagreement amongst organizations because a lot of us, you know, we're working in a space right now where people really want to get involved. They want to work in the communities and engage. Um, but our idea uh, of organizing, that's a part of that reality. Um, and it was a part of that reality for them too, yep. you know? Yeah, no, I found, I found it. I found that new perspective uh, that you put into this story refreshing because, you know, most people, especially um, not not just within that academia, but also non-academics, they, they want like 
you know, a beautiful history and, you know, history is complicated. It's messy. It's not, it's not linear, you know, which makes it beautiful. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what I say. But, but so I'm glad you highlighted that. And I, that's why I wrote that down immediately. Um, and then I'll pose the question you kind of rhetorically pose to the audience, which is what would voter registration look like in North Florida if both core and then double ACP would have collaborated more smoothly? I mean, would they probably have gotten a lot more registered voters for sure? Um, I guess for me, at that point, some of their ideologies were a little different. Um, so it would have been, I, I, I feel like the easy answer to that would be like, okay, more people would have been, you know, <laughs> registered. But right. I don't know. I think a part of it, part of me is just like, you know, I, I, I'm I, apprehensive about trying to rewrite history. Mm -hmm. No, I get um, I get but it. yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure more people, but I also want to know what kind of backlash they would have gotten too. Because let's think of like, I feel like the NAACP had worked really hard to to stay in Florida, and they, I mean, after the assassination of Harry T. Moore in 1940, you know, they were working really hard to rebuild, um, and they'd made some really connections with the local government. So I'm really curious about um, white officials would have reacted to that, because that means that some of the people that they've considered decent moderate black folk um would have been taking the sides of somebody else that's like kind of their opposition um so yeah i i, I would more so be curious to the response they would have got yeah for sure and um midway through the lecture you i don't know if twist is the right word because it wasn't like like a 180 twist like oh my god what a surprise but you did you did remind the audience that this isn't a simplistic view of voter registration um this is actually a more a story about community community engagement you know and and i just want to know your thoughts on that more of i understand what you're saying but i want you to know elaborate on that point of this isn't just a story about getting numbers on the board or statistics that's important too but it's actually about um you know how local members are engaging with communities and you said it uh forming their own political identities and how, you know sh the viewpoint of their of the world right so this actually and that I idea honestly comes from me just my own personal answers about voter registration and political engagement um you know i i i'm an, an active voter um, but i understand that apathy is all around us and it's one of those things where i'm like i kind of stop saying well you know you're just wrong and being like well why what is apprehensive? You know, what 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 makes this apprehension? Why aren't people wanting to get engaged? And so I, I started looking back in history and trying to figure out, you know, what are ways in in which in these moments where after the voter education project you see a explosion of black voting in the South, what else are they doing other than just saying like canvassing door to door, knocking and asking for them to vote? And I'm like, a lot of it is like the personal organizing. Um, I've been grateful enough to talk to some dream defenders. Um, and, you know, many of them are abolitionists. I mean, they're abolitionists in general. Um, but many of the ones who still help with registration, they know that that's a way to connect to people. I'm um, just learning about what they're doing in their community. And so, like, I'm grateful that they were agreed to talk to me um, because I feel like they kind of helped me see my work better. It's like, no, I'm not just talking about, like, canvassing. Right. Um, yeah. You close the lecture with um, with the point saying, we should always examine the role protest 
when discussing social, political, and economic advancement, and that there's always there's almost always a form of protest or the desire to protest. So, um, can you expand on that point a little bit? Yeah, I think I'm I'm kind of. Again, I think it's, I, I guess you can call me a presentist. I don't know that I'll get me in trouble these days, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, there's not a single moment in time where protesting was not a part of, of, of an aspect of activism. And I think as much as some people don't like protests, right? They don't like the outcome. Um, a lot of that outcome is due to the violence on protesters, I want to emphasize though, um, is realizing that it's not in opposition to any other form um, of what you may want to achieve. Someone wanting to, to hand do a demonstration um, should not be, ap- you should, should not make you concerned, right? About, well, I'm trying to organize with this group and I don't want any, like the idea that protests are inherently this negative thing for a lot of people or it's going to cause a problem, I think is something I want to show that's not necessarily the case. Because at one point in time, it was protests that got us to the door in the first place, right? Exactly. Right? And in this moment, you see protests and politics, like all of these forms of action. Um, and like protest is political. So like, I mean, that's an even bigger point I probably could have emphasized more. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, it's a part of all of this. Like us being politically engaged, it's it's the protesters. It's the ones registering people. It's the person who's quite frankly just doing a certain type of community service, right? Like all these different things come into like politics and community. Yeah. And, and, and I, and that's why, and I want, I want you to chime in on this. You decided that that wordplay in the title of your presentation was intentional, right? The, yeah. like the, the, the substitute of like, Oh, is it and or two? Yeah. So was that intentional because of what you were just saying right now? Yeah. And yeah. I actually, to yep. be honest, um, when I was asked, first asked to do this, that wasn't necessarily what I was gonna do. But when I you know, decided to do this, I was like, this is good, I'm, cause I'm working on this chapter right now. And that's honestly what I just kept experiencing. But I also was like, there's so, there's so much value in what Bayard Rustin said. And so like, what do, how do I switch my work in this, this belief and understanding? And I realized that he was right in that transformative era is occurring. Um, but also, you know, after 1965, like protest was very much still needed in a, in a way. And I, I, um, I found, that's what I found in, in Florida in particular. So yeah, that wordplay came just through the research. Yeah. That, that's usually how, how it happens. Yeah. And, and I enjoyed so it. Like last month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it's, and it's great. You know, I, I think titles could be, it could be hard to title something, whether it's a paper or a presentation or, or, or a book. Um, and I think you you captured it perfectly on what you were trying to to accomplish with the with the lecture. So, um, but yeah, and um, I guess my my next question, and I want to make a full disclaimer: this wasn't this isn't technically my question. It was a part of the Q and A, and it was a really good question. I wrote it down, so and I can't remember who asked this, so. <laughs> So, I know. <laughs> so apologies uh, to that person, uh, but shout out to you if you're listening to this. Um, what was the role of religion um, and the church in this story? You know, I find that when he or she, honestly, I don't remember when that person asked that question in the Q and A. I was like, wow, that's a fascinating take. 
No, yeah. I mean, even from the clip, like the first person they needed to get in contact with was the reverend. Right. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, I mean, there is a lot of contestation between um, organizing all of the stuff in the church, right? The church considered like this more conservative group. And in some regards, you know, they did, you know, push back against a lot of um, um, a lot of the, the work being done. But what I think is important and you see the church pop up so much in a lot of the civil rights movement era is that's where you know black politics like really like black organizing and an institutional structure that's where it formed right right when you're excluded from every other part of the u.s Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know being a a, a you know a a citizen right what is it like civic duty yeah like you're literally excluded from it like your form, all that stuff formed within the church. The church was literally the center. I mean, even geographically, sometimes churches were in the center. Exactly. Of yep. Um. So yeah, I mean, I I took a class, uh, not to segue, but I took a class with my advisor who um, was teaching us about you know like um, religion, law, and race. And you know, you read a lot of a lot of books, and one of the things I had I, I learned so much, I never thought about it is like. Even in my own work, um, this idea that like you need to teach people how to be a citizen, I'm like, that person votes in their church when they make decisions. That person yep. knows how to say they, they go to church meetings all the time. They mm-hmm. are organized. Yep. You know, they do all of this. They are fully aware of how to do all of these things because they do it in church. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating element into the story. Um, and that's why I wanted to ask you uh, that question. Um, this next question is a two-parter. Um, what is the legacy of this story specifically, you know, in the context of, you know, your research, which is in the North Florida and the time period of the civil rights movement, but also broadly speaking now, how does that story affect what's going on now? That story makes me think of the developments that I saw during my own time, um, you know, in college and watching organizers go from being radicalized on campus um, to later being, right now, full-blown activists um, and, and, and serious organizers in their community. Like, the, the, the story of, of CORE um, and I want to, I also just want to just emphasize real quick, a yep. lot of the workers in North Florida, like they, they went to FAMU, mm-hmm. um, they went to FSU, if you went to UF, like these are college, college students who years before um, were a part of like bus boycotts and organizing in that regard on campus, they were radicalized. And then they later moved on into their local community. I mean, we see it all the time, um, and especially in like what we've experienced now in Florida um, with a lot of... Um, you know, these, what's the word I want to use to call it? Some of the nonsense going on um, (laughs) (laughs) now, you know, I mean, trying, literally trying to take away people's rights. And you see a lot of the people who are, you know, the most vocal are, you know, youth or people who have a legacy uh, of organizing in some way, shape or form on their campus. And and I also just want to say like, the civil rights movement itself, like those generations, like we're all connected. Right. 
you know, even as we sit here now, like none of us invented, we didn't invent any new, in new ways mm-hmm. of taking down the man or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of it is we, you know, changed over time and we have our own experiences, but that legacy is, is in the legacy of the organizers. That legacy is in the legacy of, you know, the dream defender starting after the murder of Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. starting in at, you know, mm-hmm. this family, like, like yep, that yep. legacy is there. Um, because like these spaces, and I want to say, was it Robert D.G. Kelly who, who I want to say it's it was him, but like you know, um, universities aren't necessarily, um, you know, they're not free spaces, right? But it is a space um, to really. For, for a lot of um, people of color, I think it can become a space where you're actually really in a, in able to kind of um, almost like kind of kind of radicalize yourself in a way. Or I know there's a direct term he's using and it's slipping my mind, um, but it can become a, a, a almost like a intellectually, a space for intellectually robust development right. on your world and the world around you. Uh, and I also think this part is concerning, considering they the big the main center of all of this was them trying to register people to vote, and we're in a time right now where voting is becoming even more and more restrictive in those same areas, like Gatson County. Like they currently shifted um, the, their district, like their district's been shifted where they're being mm-hmm. put. They're put in a a, a conservative leaning district right now, right? They moved that, like that county was literally put into this space. They took away um, Lawson's, he, he's he been their representative. So imagine like all the work here and then you see, you know, essentially kind of redistricting used as a tool to minimize a place that currently has 50% still black. Mm-hmm. Like the main county I talked about, like still black. So that legacy is there. There's, people are still trying to yeah. manipulate their political power, you know? Yep. Yep. And and that, that's why I wanted to ask a question like that, because, you know, the legacy question, it's important um, in in most historical topics. And but one can argue, and I guess I'm the one right now <laughs> that uh, for certain historical um, trajectories and, and topics, that legacy question is, is very much alive, you know, and, 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 I, and I think with this. It certainly is. And, um, and, you know, within your answer, it kind of got me thinking of what, what are your thoughts on grassroots organizations today? And, um, is it fair to compare them to, um, historical ones? Personally, I, I don't think it's fair. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of great work being done in Florida right now. Whether it's like I, I mean I keep dropping them, but whether it's like the Dream Defenders, where it's the Florida Restoration groups trying to make sure that um, formerly convicted um, members of society get their rights back, not just voting rights, but full rights um, back. Um, there's a lot of work being done. I think um, like the NAACP still still rocking strong. Um, I think there's a lot of work being done, and I the reason I try not to compare because the whole point of studying history. Um, helps us um, understand how we got where we are, right? Yep, exactly. We can learn. We learn from history, right? right. History is a tool mm-hmm. that we can learn from and use to put into practice whatever we need, right? 
Um, and so for me, rather than compare, I want us to, to really look at them and see what insights they can teach us about right. what we're dealing with right now. Yeah, no, I agree. Beautiful answer. Um, so we're closing in on this half of the interview of the podcast conversation. Uh, so with that note, are there any final thoughts or final words you would like to say about your amazing, spectacular uh, Gerald H. Schaffner lecture on Florida history and culture? I mean, to be honest, I just want to thank all of y'all. Like, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I mean, this is not a tangent or anything, no, but I, I mean, I've looked at the people who've given this lecture before me, and I was like, first of all, I don't see any other grad students. So I'm like, wait, yeah, what is, ex- what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I appreciate people for, for putting value in my work and pouring into it, and I hope that um, the work I'm doing can help them as well. Um, I mean, in the future, I want this to be more than just, you know, stuff I'm putting on paper, right. but definitely to put it into practice. Awesome. And, and yeah, I don't think, I think you were the first grad student to be a part of this Schaffner lecture. Um, am I wrong on that or? I mean, I didn't see any others, yeah. but I'm also not trying to like, you know. No, I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> hey, hey, you know, gotta give credit where credit is due <laughs> and this is the space to do it. So no, you, you deserve it. And congratulations. Uh, it was an amazing lecture. Um, you know, I, I this is my first time being present at one. Uh, present at one, so yeah, you could say I'm biased, but no, <laughs> I'm not being biased. I heard the other ones because, in fact, if you go back into the same uh, Night History Cat feed, uh, the previous podcast producer Holly, she would be doing the same thing we're doing right now. She would interview the the Schaffner lecture presenter, and I kind of wanted to, not kind of, I wanted to continue that precedent. So. Um, no, I'm not biased because I listened to those and you, 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 yours was great. So, um, so now we'll transition to, um, the second half of this podcast conversation, which is going to be primarily about, um, the grad student panel. Um, and I want to get the title right. So let me quickly see the title of, uh, the panel that you were a part of today. So it was on on day two of the 2022 Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium event. And it was uh, session seven, panel 14, titled Roundtable on Graduate Education and the Future of History. So and you were your panelists, colleagues were Dr. Scott French and Christopher um, Mendel. So let's talk about that. So I guess I'll open the floor to you and then we'll go from there as to um what you want to talk about so yeah yeah i mean i want to just just take a minute to say i was really apprehensive about that one because i was like you know i'm i'm still in grad school right so what can i really give other grad students like we're all on the same ship um (laughs) struggling but i also reminded myself particularly the last thing i think i said and the role of grad students being in community with each other to me, I think, is not only the future of um, how like graduate school should be looked at, but or like graduate students moving towards this idea of community, but also I feel like it's gonna be important in shaping how like the field of history works, right? I mean, traditionally, like these kind of fields, you know, the work is kind of isolating. Mm-hmm. Um, at times you honestly feel in competition with other people to perform. But I feel like what we've all experienced in these last couple of years has definitely pushed us to really lean on each other and our scholarship yeah, um, together. Yep. Right. We're all we're all except we're all in this together and how much um, us being in community within this field, 
but also being in community intellectually and reading each other's work. Um, I don't know. I was always reminded by a professor of mine that like, these are all your future colleagues. <laughs> exactly. It's true. You know, um, somebody you met in, in grad school, you're going to be writing a recommendation for one of your students and they're going to be the one reading it. Yep. Right. And so like, what does it mean? Um, when you can create like a, a really good intellectual space with each other. Yeah. Um, well, for starters, as an undergrad, um, looking towards grad school myself, I found this um, this uh, panel particularly useful um, because that that I I'm you know I wanted to see more insights about the process and the, the kind of the culture that grad school comes with, and um, you mentioned something interesting in the panel, and then I I would like for you to elaborate on it here is um people are becoming more honest yeah. with not just within the actual like community in terms of you know grad students are typically very honest with each other which is good um but also more generally in terms of uh, a relationship with professors and advisors so can you expand on that a, a little bit yeah i mean oof, i don't want to get in trouble for this but <laughs> like academia could be a very toxic space yep. um you know people um, it's a, a weird f- profession where everyone, we are co-workers, but a lot of us also are friends. And then I think um, a lot of times there's like a level of deference that we all have to the people who work ahead of us, which is, is fair. But I think, you know, we're in a time where life is expensive. Um, resources are hard to come by in certain regards. And so certain expectations um, have to be very, you know, grad students are putting them out in the forefront like hey you know programs like you know funding is a, an issue like yeah. i am you know or yeah i you know i need a job you know i'm, I'm working towards a job mm-hmm. like and, it, and it does, sometimes those conversations are hard certainly yep. you know when you're looking at the you know job world and you're talking to a professor who's been in their job for decades and i'm like they don't remember this they don't have this experience as me um, I think grad students are, you know, demanding more from universities, just like undergrads. Um, I always, I told my students, I was like, don't forget, I'm also a student. I may be a part of the establishment, mm-hmm. but like, I'm a student too. I also think y'all should get treated better. Like yep. y'all get, y'all make the school run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think a lot of times too, is like really pushing universities to realize um, grad students are significant and grad student labor um literally makes <laughs> the world go round. Yep. Um so yeah, I think they're becoming um more honest in that regard. Um in just a way in which, you know, people are just doing their work, I think, um, is changing too. Like I mean, I'm a big fan of sitting in the archive and yeah. doing all that, but like COVID stopped a lot of people from, from going into the archive, right? For sure. They couldn't just sit for two. Some people didn't have the luxury of sitting for two years. Um, their programs weren't giving them the, the space they needed for that. So some of them had to, you know, maneuver in that. A lot of that was being vocal. Like, you understand, like, I can't do this work. So it was, it was a lot of just different things happening. Um, and, you know, like I said, we're all adults. So it's like, you know, yeah, I don't know. No. I even, it's a weird place. You're like a, you're, I, I always, this is like a little segue. I have a, a nephew who's like eight and I tell him what I do. And he's like, so you're a student, you have teachers. And I say, yeah. And then he's like, but you're a teacher. And I say, well, yeah. And he goes, that seems like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, 
wow, this this kid gets it. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a. I mean, at grad school, such a weird space. I, I mean, I think the one thing that you saying that reminds me of of an analogy that I I always tell to you know my my close friends and stuff like that is it's kind of like middle school where you're <laughs> you're not in high school but you're not in elementary school so you're in this like awkward phase and that also kind of goes with just going through puberty in general like you're not an adult and you're, this is a big segue but you're not like an adult and you're not a child so it's kind of, i mean i'm not in grad school so you could obviously correct me if i'm wrong but from what you're telling me that's kind of the, the vibe well grad school was a i mean middle school was a, a rough time for me so I don't, I don't consider it to be um but also i think too i mean even when it comes down to like you know like language i think a lot of times like um you know, like sometimes it could be harm in calling a grad student, like calling them a student when you know, like they're like a full-grown adult who like real responsibilities, like yeah. using um, certain language. Even with my undergrads, like I, they're students, but I don't call them kids. Like you're not kids, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of times it's stuff like that too. So I think for me, it, it's just a weird space. Yeah, no, it's like um, this awkward uh, kind of in in between. That's kind of what I was trying to get at with yeah, the whole yeah. middle school analogy. But. I honestly am just having flashbacks from middle school. That's why I can't. <laughs> so let's, let's avoid middle school. Screw that. <laughs> um, but, um, and and before we, we continue with this panel, this is kind of where I was saying that, you know, the second half and the third half of this podcast kind of blend in together. So let, let's backtrack a little bit so our listeners could appreciate your answers more um, in the context you're giving them. So you went to UF for your yeah. undergrad. Um, and just take it from there. Yeah, so I went to UF for my undergrad. I got a degree in history and African American studies. Um, both programs um, helped develop me. So, like uh, African American studies program really shaped me um, a lot as well. And so did the Samuel Proctor Old History Program. Um, and so I went there um, three and a half years. Took a break a year, and then I went to the University of Virginia. Um, and where I got a well MA in route, but I, I applied for the PhD, and so now I'm in my fifth year there. Um, and then in this year, I'm on fellowship at Emory. They have a James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, who are amazing. Um, and so I'm currently there for the year, just writing and dissertating and all the fun stuff. And how how far along are you? I know you said that the this, the Gerald H. Doffner lecture helped you out in a way because. Um, that's the chapter you're you're focused on right now. So how how far along are you in that process? I got some I got, I got some chat I got like a, some chapters. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I'm just gonna leave it at that. I got some chapters. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, and you said you took a break. Yeah. So um, and it's totally okay. If, oh yeah, full tr- full transparency. Okay, cool. Um, so if, and I'm asking mainly like. Yeah, for me, because you know I'm kind of in this yeah. process, and uh, for our listeners as well. But uh, so yeah, I mean, so my fall, fall of my starting of the my last my fourth year, I, I went to like plan like the year, and I was told that I was graduating in that semester fall, and I was like, well, I didn't prepare for that, and I was like, I want to go to grad school, and I was like, oh, I know what I'm doing, mm-hmm. um, and my my professor is like super, you know, shout out to Paul Ortiz, um, <laughs> I love shout outs, yeah, so yeah, give them, give them, shout out to Sharon Austin, yeah. you know, they're both at UF, she's in political science, he's in history, shout out to Evan Hart, uh, she's at, I, I believe, West Missouri, um, and, love it, they, um, 
were just like super, you know, supportive. But I literally was trying to do like the whole application myself. I was like, I know what I'm doing. I, I'm just gonna grab some. Like, how would they not pick me? Like, my grades are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got. I think got those couple no's, <laughs> and I was mm-hmm. like, wait, this application's not that great. Um, and I felt kind of like you know a little jaded. I've wanted to be a historian since I was like 15. I told my parents awesome. I was gonna do this, and I remember like they were like. You just got to do it again. Um, I think one of them, like, Dr. Ortiz, like, I didn't get in the first time. Like, a lot of times this idea of, like, going straight from undergrad into grad school um, is just, it doesn't flow the way it's supposed to. And a lot of times it's because you kind of need that space. So I was like, well, I want to do this. Um, So I took a year off. I realized, um, one, I didn't like like my writing sample. Uh, I rewrote the whole thing. I did research. uh, I wrote something different. And I had a minute to really think about, like, okay, I want to do this, but, like, why? Like, my personal statement was just, like, well, I like history, and da, 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 mm-hmm. and I'm great. No, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what exactly am I doing? Like, right. where does my passion for this even lie? Um, and that year was, like, super transformative for me. Um, That's real, has Yeah, and I, I mean, I look back on, like, the application process, and I compared, like, the first time I did it when I was still taking classes and just, like, well, I want to do completely different applications um and then i got into uh uva and nice. yeah i was like living with my sister and we read i like read it out loud and then we ran around the apartment that's awesome, <laughs> that's awesome. yeah um and so yeah i've been there i stayed there for um and living in charlottesville for the four years until i just moved to atlanta for this fellowship yeah i i, I personally i appreciate that perspective because like i said i'm in this process now and it's, it's, it's hopeful, but it's also a little bit naive to think, oh, yeah, like everything how I'm thinking it's going to work out exactly how it is. You know, life doesn't work that way. Um, so um, so would you suggest um, taking a gap year? Like what is the what's the, the signs um, if there's any clear ones? Honestly, I think first of all, one like burnout is real and burnout yes, happens. It, it happens. Right. And end of the day, if you're still working your connections, so even on that year off, like I did um, some oral history stuff, I still came, stayed connected with right. my institutions um, and stuff like that. Um, give yourself the mental space. Cause like, if you decide to go full PhD, cause I mean, funding's another thing too. Mm-hmm. Like I knew I couldn't, I, I can't afford this. Right, I gotta right, go to right. a funded program, yeah. right? <laughs> so I think like, you know, if you need that break, like, Give yourself that break, especially if you know for a fact it's going to help you kind of develop the application that you really want to have. Um, I also realized I came in being like even nervous about the fact that I didn't have an MA and that I took a year off and I get and I get into grad school and I'm like. Some of the best uh, people who who've helped me so much. Um, there's a, a grad student year ahead of me, Joseph Foley, who we have the same advisor um he's been like super helpful um and other people as well but a lot of them like everybody didn't um do that traditional route um and what's what i wanted to emphasize too like in this is idea i mean the traditional student is somebody who is young straight out of undergrad right or maybe go through ma and it's usually typically a white affluent male like that's like the old tradition of school and i'm like that's not how it that's not it anymore and um, just other uh, grad students I've met in various places, like a lot of people worked before coming to grad school. They did all these other things. Um, you know, they 
worked in nonprofits. They worked in corporate America. They, you know, taught in K through 12. Um, they done a lot of things that kind of frankly, quite frankly, shaped how they got here. Right. And I realized like, I may have had like a little of a year of that, but I mean, I probably could have benefited from more of just like real world experiences before I jumped back into going to school. I mean, that's just, that's just reality. Um, now with that being said, if you just really are ready to go, like go. Like, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard that, that, that advice. If, if, if you're ready, um, literally what you said, just go. Yeah. Cause, uh, it, it could be, uh, very, um, timely, you yeah. know, the process. Um, but, and in terms of logistics, um, just cause I feel, I don't know if this is maybe just like a personal problem in the sense that I'm the only one that didn't really know. Um, or if undergrads in history that are looking to go to grad school are also um, not really aware of the logistics behind it. When I say logi- logistics, I mean you're not looking necessarily at the school. You're looking at the the faculty that's in that school that could provide you. And, and you kind of, you and, and your colleagues in the panel kind of mentioned it, um, a space where you could flourish. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, and so the professor I mentioned earlier, Evan Hart, actually was the one that helped me understand this because she actually sent me like a, a sample of how to properly like even reach out. Like we talked about it, like how to properly reach out to faculty because you're looking for an advisor. Like you know, some schools don't answer, but like little stuff like that. Like some people don't know to do that. Or some people are told not to, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes like that's what gets your foot in the door. Yep. If you send an email about your work and that person's like, oh, like this undergrad's work sounds pretty interesting. Or like, oh, this MA student, their work sounds pretty interesting. I think I could, you know, work with them. That puts your name out there. Um, I think also just like I said, the cost, um, how much it costs to live there. Like none of this stuff I thought about. Right. I was just like, okay, even when I got in, I was like, oh, I'm going to U- uh, UVA, cool. I just live in Charlottesville, okay, whatever. Like. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you know, this is a whole commitment of yep. your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not like applying to undergrad at all. Um, it's it's not. Um, but that's why I think it's important, too, to always have those mentors, people who, you know, especially, you know, if it's, if it's like senior faculty or those, you know, who work with grad students, like they read applications. They know mm-hmm. what schools are looking for. Right. Um, and those are the people who can give you that good feedback, you know. Uh, so yeah, I think I wasn't um, as transparent. I think another thing, um, it wasn't as transparent. I think another thing too I want to emphasize is a lot of the stuff you learn in undergrad, like you end up um, having to learn so much more in grad school. Mm-hmm. But I, I noticed like, like I don't, for example, have you had to write a historiography paper? Yeah. Not everyone's programs make them do that. Oh, wow. So, like, and I say that to say, like, a lot of times when you get into grad school, you're like, oh, everyone knows what they're doing and everyone doesn't. I'm like me, like, I've written history papers, but I, I actually hadn't written a full, like, historiography of the field of, like, whatever. I had not done that before grad school. Uh, and I'll never forget. I, I feel like I'm oversharing, but, like, our no, first I, intro I, course, <laughs> like... I remember the professor was like, all right, everyone, like, you know, you're all first hydrography paper is due, like, whatever date. Uh-huh. And some people ob- automatically got the bad knew what that was. Some, or right. they'd written one already, right, right? right? I knew what it was. I'm like, I've never written this before. Uh-huh. Um, 
And eventually, like I think it took a, maybe a day or two, finally a couple of us admitted we'd never been forced to write an extensive one like mm-hmm. that. We've written like summaries of books. And like I was like, okay, cool. It's so, like I'm not crazy. Right. Um, and it was the other grad student who was a couple of years ahead of us like, no, like that's not, like you're fine. And so they showed us an example, right? But like this idea of like, you come in thinking you know everything. And if you don't know something and someone else knows it, imposter syndrome, like literally, well, um, is one of the biggest things I think so many people deal with. Like, I'm not meant to be here. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's just, that's just not the case. Like, I know everyone complains about it being a thing, but it overcomes all of us at some point. And we really got to make sure that like, we recognize that like, we are meant to be here. Yeah, that, 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 that's real because, um, and, and I, I can imagine in the graduate level, it's it's even it's even more um, intensified that 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 feeling. Um, but even you know in undergrad, people you know especially if the you could already t- kind of tell which students really are committed to this craft, and then you know if they see another student doing something, they're like, oh. So I I appreciate that you brought to light that because um we're all in this together. We all kind of go through the same thing. (laughs) So it's like, you know, it's not, let's not create these fictitious divisions among us. Like if we're on this one track solo, no one, no one's helping. No, that's not the case, you know? And then you said it um, earlier in the interview, I don't know when, but you said it's like eventually, you know, the, your, the, your classmates will become your colleagues, will become your friends. So it's like, you know, what's the point of this, weird uh imposter syndrome vibes going on you get me yeah i think the best advice i got um was that literally just work on what you literally work on what you're interested in and focus your efforts into doing and enjoying what you love to do and don't change that like you know if an opportunity comes up if it doesn't fit you but like some people run the field their cvs like if it doesn't fit you it doesn't fit you like once you really foreground yourself and who you are, the work that you do, the opportunities that are for you, and this sounds like some self-help stuff, I know. No, nah, no, nah, this is important. Like I'm serious, like yes. the stuff like that is for you, it's for you. I know for a fact my work was on Florida. I've been able to speak on Florida. I'm sitting with you mm-hmm. as a lecturer. That's yep. a series that's about Florida. Exactly. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, a lot of times we get tripped up in trying to make ourselves look the most successful when quite frankly like the we need to be finding the things that we love and the opportunities that best sit sit for us yeah that's great advice and 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 you're so that was a question i was going to ask oh. anyways <laughs> no 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 I, this is how this is how good the conversation is going it's just coming up like naturally um cuz you are obviously v- very established in grad school and you know it's hardly it's 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 not it's not something lightly to say oh yeah i presented at the schaffner lecture and i'm the first grad student i'm I'm giving you your props because you you rightfully deserve it and and then i I, and i understand the position i'm in right now sitting in front of you and talking to you um and, and and having the opportunity to really you know you know um have a conversation with you pick your brain about this process because um, yes, I'm going, I plan on going through it and, um, I hope there's listeners out there that are also planning on going in as well. And I want to have, create this space for people to really understand what that means. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I really do appreciate it. And, um, 
I mean, just looking here at the list of other topics you talked about, but I mean, it's going so like the flow is so good. So if you have anything else to say, I mean, I don't yeah. want to just, just kind of turn the conversation to a question I have here. I mean, if there's anything you have to say about that. No, yeah, I think um, the one I, I briefly touched on at the very end. Um, and that was like the question of like, like mentorship mm -hmm. and like having like a very like di diversified mentorship. I think to me, that is one of the um, biggest things I was recently told, but didn't realize like that's kind of what I've always kind of done. Um, but um, the importance of it, because you want to have people who are established and what, and this is honestly any form of like career stuff, so, like people right. who are established, those in between, someone who's right in front of you, all these different forms of mentorship and like seeing, so it, it's useful to have like, a buddy that's a, a, a year ahead of me. Mm -hmm. Like I referenced like Joseph, like he was like yep. my host when I got there. Mm -hmm. um, and I can be like, hey, like you did this last year. Like what's your experience? Yep. Like I can also ask a tenured professor, like, you know, like you read job applications, like what's your experience? <laughs> like, right, right. you know, as I sit here as someone who's gonna be in the job market in the near future, mm -hmm. like being able to, to talk to different people or faculty or in between, like, you know, you started at this school and like you moved here. Like, what's that like? Mm -hmm. So that happens to me where I'm like, oh, you know, there's a better opportunity for me. Like, um, don't be afraid to just ask for help and like be transparent about that. And if someone doesn't want to help you, well, then that's fine because there's another someone else who yep. is more than willing. Exactly. You move on. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up about diversity um, in, in terms of... Uh, the mentorship uh arsenal i guess you could say uh and not just like in age but in backgrounds and in, in life experiences in general absolutely um because that was one of the last things you mentioned in the panel and and, and i wrote it down here and it's, it's very important and you know personally i i think i'm genuinely st starting to connect with professors uh, of, of all different walks of life and when i really resonated when you said that in the panel and when you're saying it right now because I feel so enriched just to be around them, you know, and, and, and not just for this process, just in general, like being around them, it's like, oh my God, you know, like I'm just learning so much just in general, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, Y'all got some good people. Yeah. Like, they're just so nice. I mean, <laughs> and, I, I, and the work is good. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this because I'm, you know, technically part of the, the, the faculty here as the podcast producer, I genuinely mean it. And I don't know if I've been, it's funny because I've been saying this. I first said this like a week ago um, to someone. And then I said it again to a professor that's not part of the history department, but he's here at UCF. And then I said it again to someone else. But I am i don't know if the last time I said it was on a record or, or something. But I'm going to say it here since it's naturally within the conversation. But And I genuinely mean this. I'm not saying it because, again, I'm the faculty or whatever. Um, I feel like the UCF history department, it's like a pot of gold. Like I, I, I don't, when I started to take history classes and then fully established the, the, the major of history, I didn't realize how many amazing professors we had. And like you said, they're also kind and willing to help. And so I guess what I'm saying is a shout out to them because, um, I feel like it's an underrated, uh, aspect of just UCF in general. And, um, so yeah, like a pot of gold is what I would say. 
No, I and I guess like my my tip to that is, um, you know, just pay it forward. That's what I've always been told. I had someone tell me that when I was applying to grad school. Um, like I said, thank you about something. I think it was a, a scholar, J.T. Rowan. Um, he was an undergrad student for my current advisor, Claudrina Harold, and I'd ask him asked him about being in Charlottesville, and I was like, thank you so much for taking the time. And he was like, we'll pay it forward. Um, and this is all virtual, like the world mm-hmm. of virtual, right? Um, but that's kind of like uh, a, a mentality I've seen with a lot of people and a lot of very caring scholars is that like, you know, you help each other and then you pay it forward to someone else, right? Like you could be paying it forward right now, just us talking right here mm-hmm. or later in your work, right. um, you know, where that shows you. I know what I found as a grad student, like within this realm is I take notes on how my professors engage yeah. um, in the classroom and how they teach. Yeah, <laughs> um, Yep. Yeah, I, I have an advisor who's like a, a very popular teacher. Her uh-huh. classes are, like she's known for being a very good teacher. Um, and the times I've seen her teach, like I made mental notes on like how she engages because I like it. I have another right. same thing. Like I've watched how he, t- I'm like, they love his lectures. Like right. how, um, like that's a part of the process too. Yep, 100%. Is, yeah, you know, finding, finding people in this space who do the things that, in the way that you yourself would want to do it one day, mm-hmm. um, who have the attitude that you want to have about it one day, right? If you find yourself in that in that space, like I like how they do this, like I, that's something I want to, I, I admire, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's what it sounds like to me. You have a lot of professors you genuinely admire, which yeah. is beautiful. Yes, <laughs> no, I I agree hundred percent. You're you're saying it so eloqu- eloquently, um, and because that's how it is, you know. It's a, it it is an admiration, you know, I, and it's envisioning oneself you know okay that's like you said that's how i want to do it um in my own way but that's like kind of the foundation you know so um yeah i mean that's i was an undergrad too like dr ortiz and dr austin and yeah uh professor hart evan hart like that's they did things i want to do right right for sure um i guess we're good we'll be wrapping up here shortly because this natural conversation is way better than all these other questions i have uh about uh the panel um and 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 i'm I'm just looking at at it right now and it's we're basically hitting all the points just without me interrupting and asking the actual question um i guess one thing here that i would like to talk about um you were mentioning in the panel that um there's a certain flexibility if you will with um being a history major and getting a degree in history whether it's um ma or phd um just being in the profession in general um so we could start there but then you also kind of started that premise and continued it with how there's kind of a a shortage if you will of undergrads you remember when you were saying that yeah so So yeah, actually I think Dr. French um, was one of the ones who brought that up. And um, I think a lot of universities have been talking about it because like, you know, I think it's not as, um, a lot of the more humanities isn't as popular for some people. You know, they they think you can't get a career out of like history degree or, you know, philosophy. Um, Because like I said, history is not the only one suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think this, this mentality, right? But it's not, I mean, 
So for me, like I, I love history. Right. I love the historical narratives. I love all of that. But you also learn just genuine, like very critical, like skills mm-hmm. as an intellectual. Yep. Um, by being a historian, right? Um, a lot of people do histories for various foundations. Mm-hmm. You know, National Park Service is a big one. I know a lot of people who work with them and et cetera. There doesn't have to be this like just basic pipeline. One that I'm kind of on mm-hmm. from going from undergrad and being a professor or the next, I think the next example is like a million people told my parents like, oh, she's going to law school, right? <laughs> like, and then she's like, they're like, no, she doesn't want to do that. And like, yeah. so this day, my dad, my dad had a friend still like, you know, you sure she doesn't just want to go to law school? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I've already got accepted. I'm not going to law school. Right. Right. But I think, I think a lot of times it's like, we need to have a conversation about those skills. Um, the skills that you learn from like, like I said, you're thinking critical, you're reading, you're writing a lot of public history stuff is community engagement work. Public history is not for the faint of heart. It, that's a lot of work. And a lot of people don't necessarily see it that way. Like it's beyond just like reading and writing, but that's like hardcore community engagement. Those who do digital work, I mean, that's the next level as well. There's so many things that go into people who, who engage with history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to start looking at it that way. Um, and stop, you know, making it seem that those who don't do the traditional route aren't, you know, as accomplished. I think that's one of the things too, right? Is like, if you don't become a professor, like, okay. Like, but I mean, I think a lot of that, you know, is a little splash of elitism that just kind of needs to, you know, go away. No, it's true. Um, but yeah, I think getting people to, um, look at what they can do with history, but also, I mean, just the backlash that history gets or like the like the contested space we're in now mm-hmm. about people trying to give like these false narratives about you history in general, whether it's US, whether it's like, you know, any form of international history, et cetera. That kind of shows you how much uh, history can be weaponized and the power that it has. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. The narratives that we may read in these books and those those things, I don't even want to say trickle down. Like this is not the you know, the Reagan era, but like we're still combating um false narratives from decades before, right? Like I ever mind like it was like one time I told one student, I was like, There's still people to this day who don't want to call MLK radical at all, right? Yeah. Because of that narrative of he of I had a dream. Like the fact that people are still like not even willing to do like mm-hmm. like a lot of that stuff means something. Mm-hmm. So like this this knowledge is seriously powerful. Um and so history is like seriously powerful. So if you're listening out there like I mean, if you, I mean, they're listening, they like history at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, if, but yeah, like it's it's powerful and so is the degree itself. Yeah, and and one thing that uh, the, I think the biggest takeaway of today's event, um, the day two specifically of the FHS symposium event, and this is not an, an, a plug for that. It's, a, it's just what I kind of took away from it, from the, all the different panels, is about the power of, that the profession of history has and that it's something that is starting to become professionalized in a different way, you know, and, and I highly, highly recommend, um, for the listeners out there, if you want to know more what I'm talking about, just go back to episode 22, which is the episode previous to this one. Um, and listen to some of the interviews I was able to conduct, um, with several people from the day two panels 
because uh for example like dr scott french he uh mentioned how you know it's professionalizing that history major and it's not we're not in a day and age where your typical historian is just on ivory tower and you know in that vibe it's not that anymore and 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 i like how you mentioned it and also someone else mentioned it earlier in the day that it have to change that aspect of not rewarding the ones that don't do it the traditional way you know the traditional way is still valuable it's not to disparage that but i in my personal opinion i think it's unfair for um the profession to be um not rewarded if you take a different route um so i I really that's why i really like how how you put it there yeah and i also do think a lot of that comes from the history because i mean anyone who does like the history whether it's like you know black history indigenous histories etc um some of the best historians I've always said some of the best historians is someone's grandmother who refused to throw anything away. That's an archivist. Yeah. Right. Someone who, who, who's, who's written poems and different stuff about their family. Like that, that's a, that's a historian. Yeah. Like, you know, someone who's done their own family background. Like those are the best historians. I know. I, I've literally said that in a group, a small group of people. I was like, you know, I was like, I said anyone could be a historian and some people got really upset, (laughs) but yeah. I'm like some of the best history and collections like we owe to everyday people who have maintained it. And it's like, I mean, they're not, they're not now a free tower. Right. Right. But I value their work because particularly, like I said, if you study um, people of color, any form of people who um, have been persecuted in any way, you realize a lot of their history comes from that. It wasn't preserved from the beginning. Right. Um, you know, people, Oral history had to be argued at some point to be valid. And I'm yeah. like, some cultures don't write things down, but yeah. they have a amazing and robust traditional oral history mm-hmm. um, as a part of like their cultural practices. Yeah. So, you know, 100%. Yeah. So some of that traditional stuff is not the only way to, you know, because we've been more willing to do um, and engage with all histories in different form than just like, you know, more Western centered your more euro centered ways of history is why we have so much history today and why we keep having it because we're moving beyond that while still you know like i said i, I sit in a good archive and look at notes all day too so i'm not i'm not <laughs> no, exactly hey, like two things can be true exactly exactly <laughs> and, and that that's why I, I i was talking about how it's not you know oh screw traditional no it's it's still valuable it's just not the only way yeah it's I think not the only way to engage, it, with, it, engage with history exactly and i think that's that's the the main point not only that we're saying here, but I think I could confidently say that's kind of the mindset mm-hmm. that most people, at least in today's event, because I'm telling you, it's kind of, I don't think it's a coincidence that you said it, you know, that you kind of said the same thing that Dr. French said and that Dr. French said, said kind of said the same thing as uh, someone else that I interviewed earlier today um, was also mentioning. And then that, that's, uh, as someone that's upcoming in the field, and I, I think you could relate to this, that's refreshing um, and inspiring, you know, going into this profession and realizing that it's uh, opening. There's more doors to be open and people are encouraging it. Right. I think that's awesome. So um, so we're heading in on an hour and 13 minutes. Um, it's been an hour, and 13 minutes of fun for me. It's been awesome <laughs> to I'm chat chilling. with you. Yeah. <laughs> 
and um i think we got down all the all the points from the panel so we'll be wrapping up here and um i guess some of the last two questions or three questions i'll ask you is uh so you said you're at your in your fifth year in your grad studies program um so what's the future like for you what's it looking like well what are the aspirations (laughs) What I'd like to do mm-hmm. is, well, one, finish. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd be nice to be someone's professor somewhere, um, writing a book, teaching. Like like I said, as much as I, I talk a lot of mess, like I, I, I think I've always been more so inclined to do the traditional route. Yeah, same. Um, with, but with, with, I would always want to some like community engagement mm-hmm. aspect of that. I mean, most of the people I've worked with in some way, shape or form have done something um that has been um influential in like a community or a, a, a group of people um so i don't i don't want my work to just sit within the walls of the university uh, how the how that may look i mean that depends on where i am um but yeah that's i mean that's my goal um and then retire one day and have an antique shop. That's my next one. But that's awesome. That's uh, that's yeah. years, years ahead. Yeah. yeah, I know some people don't like to retire. I was like, I don't think I'll ever be that professor. I'm definitely gonna be one of those ones. Yeah. like who's gonna retire? <laughs> <laughs> Look, hey, you know, I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> I love history, but also like academia is a job. You yeah, know? yeah, no, for sure. Um, but yeah. So, and do you plan on turning your dissertation into into a book? Like, yeah, I mean, I would love to do that. I feel like it's going to change a lot. Even as I'm writing it now, I think about that and I think about next projects all the time. Um, not to say that my disc isn't engaging. I love writing it. Um, I, I, That's another tip for anyone. Like, as people always say, they get tired of their project. And I just, I don't know, I just haven't gotten there. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I love my work, but it has a larger meaning for me. And I think that's probably what keeps me going. But yeah, I would love for it to be a book one day. You yeah. know, shout out to the publishers listening. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> shout out. And uh, and you, you're saying something now that, um, you know, about being engaged with the dissertation and, and just in research in general. And I think that it goes back to that interest that you were talking about. And, um, you know, my high school uh, capstone teacher, um, which capstone is just a research program, AP mm-hmm. capstone. Yeah. So, um so shout out to Dr. Haas. One well, gave me so many shout outs that is awesome. You know, I, I usually don't like to. I mean, I don't know how my interviewee would would you know respond to shout outs, but shout, I like yeah, shout outs. I'm here for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, shout shout out to Dr. Haas because she she was the first person ever in in my life really to to tell. She didn't wasn't telling me directly, but she was telling the class um, that picking a research topic it, it it's the most important step. You know, it sets up everything. And she said the, she kind of used the analogy of it's like. You know, you're getting it. You're basically married to this topic. You know, you think about it, you sleep about it, you sleep with it, you, you do everything with it. So you have to choose carefully. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I have a hard time watching the news, but yeah, <laughs> yeah but like I said, I still a topic. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it any other way. I'd still be doing politics and stuff. It's a lot of mess, but yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and, and that's awesome. And, and I'm glad that, that you're in that, um, that you're in that headspace of not wanting to, um, you know, change your topic despite the trials and tribulations, which I guess now that I said it, um, and I think me and other people in, in my shoes would appreciate it. What are some of the, the challenges that you've gone through in your graduate experience? 
You mean like with my work or just life? <laughs> mm. More so your work, but just yeah. the life of a graduate student. I mean, I think it can be hard. Um, you know, I feel like this is probably like one of the lamest things, but like, you know, like you're doing a lot of work and sometimes, you know, you, I mean, you're not as established. It's just like some of my closest friends are like well into their careers and stuff. And sometimes I'm like, I'm, I'm still a student. Right. <laughs> um, I think that, I think also like the work itself, like it takes a lot of time. Um, and it's, it takes a lot of dedication. Um, I think people underestimate how expensive research is. Mm -hmm. um, you don't know that until you start doing research. Mm -hmm. You're like, yeah, you got to pay to go to all these archives and do all this stuff and stay here. And where's the hotel? Um, I think also the hardest thing, too, is just, I mean, I end up reading about just a lot of inequality. Um, and I think that's another part of it, particularly for people who are studying communities that they're a part of. Like, that's emotionally taxing. Like you read like several people who've just spent months like organizing and someone squashes it or something violent happened. And like sometimes you just got to put the book down or put the paper down and like take a mental break. Um, my subject still is not even some of the harder subjects. Right. But it's a, it's enough to stress me out sometimes and make me just need to take a break. So I can imagine those who are doing other things that are more centered on violence or even like those people who, you know, work on enslavement and other, and other topics. I think that's something we need to to remind ourselves, like check in with ourselves mentally. For sure. Because, um, yeah, when you study a topic that has to do with any form of inequality or injustice, it makes you jaded, Yeah, <laughs> you know? It could be mentally taxing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, do you plan on, do you have like a specific location geographically on where you would want to do your work after you graduate from UVA? I mean, I don't know. I always said, you know, once a Florida girl, always a Florida girl. But I mean, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> one thing I will say though, I I'm I'm pretty much a southerner. Mm -hmm. I I mean, this is a formal setting. I've I've been working hard to cut the axe in a little bit. <laughs> um, but <laughs> you should uh, be but, yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I. I used to be one of those people, I want to stay here, I need to be here. But in all honesty, I just want to be somewhere where my work is appreciated and valued. That's real. Um, and where I can honestly be the best professor to my students as possible as well. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like where I'm at. I mean, there's no perfect place, but if I can have an impact and keep my sanity, like, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that's real. Nothing that, too cold, though. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah. I, I you know being in florida all my life i i, I can't do cold I, it, it's ju it's just dropped recently like oh. the, this week it dropped to 50 and i was like hold up it's still october i i'm not ready for this the first the first time i saw snow was literally in grad school yeah. and i literally did not hadn't seen it and i'm like a grown adult and so like it's like my first year of grad school and people yeah. are like you've never seen snow i was like no yeah when i visited the north it's summertime so I, I have no idea what this feels like or is this has been an amazing podcast conversation. One of my favorites for sure. Um, it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast here in Night's History Cast. Um, it was a pleasure, first of all, just meeting you and being able to connect with you these past two days. And your Gerald H. Schaffner lecture on Florida history and culture was absolutely fantastic. And I think there's no um, argument there. And um, and like I said, this podcast was inter uh, was fantastic and i hope our listeners really value what you said not only in your lecture but as your experiences in grad school because um it's important to 
to to give a space to to this process. I feel like a lot of people don't know about it, and it's and, and not just undergrads looking at it. Just you know, this is hard, you know, and and, yeah. and this is time consuming. So it's important to to check in on that. So that's Allison Mitchell, everybody. Um, you if you have any final thoughts or final words you would want to say, go ahead. Floor is yours. Um, I just want to say thanks for having me. Um. I mean, obviously, like, you know, I got to give you a credit, dude. I was like, I don't know that many undergrads doing what you're doing right now. So, like, you're you're killing the game, too. I think I think collectively we can we can just say, you know, everybody's doing great up in this room. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, just I'm just thankful for the historical uh, historical society for having me uh, UCF's history department for doing all this stuff and the staff um, and Dr. Lesser and everybody else and you as well. Just just have them happy. I got this experience. Yeah, well, it, the feeling's definitely mutual. So, Allison Mitchell, everyone. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> that was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope it was inspiring and educational for undergrads that were listening. And for everyone else, I hope you learned about um, the important history behind grassroots organizing in the South and in you know North Florida. And I'm glad that I that I did the interview now and I, and to be quite honest with you, I didn't plan on doing it this way. Um, it, it just kind of the nature of when the Florida historical society event was placed, which was this past weekend, um, October 21st, October 22nd, but we're right in prime time, um, voting season here in Florida. So, um, you know, for whatever it's worth, it's, it's historical, but it's still imperative today. As we mentioned throughout the podcast, I can't say how much I appreciated these two days. Um, so yeah, it was great for night's history cast. I'm Sebastian Garcia. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future conversations about history. Thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this weekend extravaganza. Um, I tried my best to capture the essence of it and make it seem like you all were there in person. Um, and you know, if you're by the central Florida area next year, I highly recommend going because it, it, it truly is um, educational and enriching and enlightening to go to learn all these uh, facets about Florida history and culture. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the weekend extravaganza and I will see you all next week.